We are in, I think, what, fifth, sixth lesson of our Romans series. So if you've got your Bible, we'll be in Romans. We are going to look a little bit at Genesis tonight. So if you have your Bibles, we will be in Romans. But let's review just a little bit. Um, one of the major themes that we've been talking about the last few weeks has been that God is righteous, right? That God is righteous. He's fair. He does what's right. He's just. When we say God is just, again, I, I want to keep reminding us that we have this tendency to think of justice in simply in terms of punishment, but that's only a one-sided view, a one uh, sort of aspect view of justice, and that is a, a part of justice is, is punishment, uh, but justice is multifaceted, and God is just towards the poor. God is just toward the broken. God is just towards the hurting, meaning he lifts them up. He restores. He redeems. He's, he's a helper. He's good. God is good. And there's always been, from the very beginning, the idea that God will ultimately help and restore and redeem the righteous people, right? The people that are good and fair and do what's right, People that, that do good to other people. People that are righteous towards one another, right? And, and if you lived your whole life and you helped other people and you lived by the rules and you took care of your neighbor and you were generous and wise and then you died, you'd say, where's the justice in that, right? And so there's this idea that for God's just and righteous people, God will reward them and take care of them and bless them, raise them from the dead. That's ultimately always been, even before Jesus, the, the hope of the Jewish people, the hope of Abraham's descendants was resurrection, that God would raise the righteous from the dead, that God would raise, Jesus said, both the righteous and the wicked, that he would punish the wicked and that he would reward the righteous. But the, the ultimate question is, if that's true, if God is going to raise the dead and he's going to punish the wicked, and he's going to reward the righteous, and bless the righteous forever in his kingdom, then, then who are those guys, right? I mean, who are the righteous people, and who are the wicked people? And if you were ethnically Jewish, you would have a tendency to think, the righteous are my people, right? The righteous are, are the descendants of Abraham. We're the, the Torah keepers. You know, we've, we've kept the, the Sabbath. We were circumcised. We did what was right. We were generous and helpful and law-abiding, but, but Paul, Paul does a really good job of helping them to see that that's not always true, is it? Are, are, have you kept the law perfectly just because you had it and just because you had these markers and identifiers that you were Torah people, circumcised and eating the right food and those kind of things, didn't mean that you are really righteous. We talked about a few different things. We summarized Romans 1 this way. That God's righteousness is revealed both in his deliverance and in his wrath. That God is righteous to punish the wicked and that God is righteous uh, to reward those who are righteous. But we also talked about the fact that because of God's righteousness, being Jewish, being ethnically Jewish or being a Torah observer, you know, having the identifiers, the markers of, of being Jewish, especially circumcision, uh, but things like wearing the right clothes and eating the right food and not, not working on the Sabbath and doing all of those sort of Torah observant things, having the law, being Jewish, will neither save you from the curse of sin nor earn you preferential treatment with God. 
I was trying to think of better words, like I'm always trying to think of better words that'll kind of help us to grasp these concepts a little bit better. And we have a tendency to think about in terms of working and earning versus by grace. And it wasn't just that. Again, I, I think that we have a really hard time putting ourselves in the text because for us, the only thing we've really experienced in religion is sort of like works, you've heard people talk about works-based righteousness and grace-based righteousness, and that's kind of been the discussion for the last, you know, thousand years is around that sort of thing. But in this period of time, it's more like, I think because I'm Jewish, I think because I keep the Torah, I think because I've been circumcised and my family actually descended from Abraham, that I'm entitled to these blessings. Now, if we can kind of understand that, and again, I think we have to sympathize with that, don't we? We can't just look at it and say, well, that was just so wrong, and you're just so off base. Yes, it was wrong, and Paul's dismantling that idea. But can we kind of see how somebody gets into that sort of way of thinking? I mean, if, again, and I've used this analogy before, but, but if you think about your, your physical family, and see, we have a tendency to only think about family like maybe one or two generations out. And then after that, it's just kind of like, well, yeah, I guess we're kind of related to them, you know, whatever. You know, it's not really that important. Our great, 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 great grandparents, that's just a name on a list, right? But if you, if you knew that you had descended from some, like, awesome dynasty or something, or if your, if your heritage came with an actual monetary uh, invest or inheritance, I mean, then your, your genealogy would mean something to you, Right? And you would say, I'm entitled to that. Not like, like selfish entitlement, but think about it in the most sympathetic light. And just think, you can, you can kind of see how a person would feel that way, right? I'm entitled to God's blessings because God made a promise to Abraham and to all of Abraham's descendants. And that, that's me, and that's not those people. And then Paul is walking through that idea with them. Because Paul comes from that background too, doesn't he? Paul is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. This is a Jewish story. It's Jewish all throughout. It is. It absolutely is. But the idea that a Jesus-following descendant of Abraham was more entitled to the blessings of Abraham, to the inheritance of Abraham because of his ethnicity or because of his sort of outward identifying markers of keeping the law, it was not in keeping with the gospel. See, this idea of ethnic superiority or nationalistic superiority, it's not just a Jewish problem, is it? It's not just a Jew-Gentile problem, is it? Every single, probably every single culture in the world has those sort of struggles with people that feel nationalistically superior to another group or ethnically superior to another group. And Paul, throughout his ministry, this was the absolute biggest issue with which he dealt. The kind of the religious stuff we deal with today, that kind of stuff was hardly ever on his radar. Some of the arguments we've had over the last 20 or 30 years, that stuff wasn't on his radar. What was on his radar was the coming together of all nationalities and ethnicities. And do you remember what he writes in Galatians? Galatians is probably his first letter. And all throughout that letter, I mean, you Man, it's the hardest letter that Paul ever wrote. I mean, it's rough. It is rough. 
And, and, and Paul, I mean, he gets right with them. And, and he, I won't even say what he says, but I mean, it's, it's just rough. Read it if you haven't read it. Read Galatians. And one of the things he talks about, and he, he, he kind of throws Peter out there. And he says, listen, in Antioch, I mean, we had a good thing going on. There were Jews and Gentiles, and we were family. We were all sitting at the table. We were enjoying this table fellowship. We were family. And then all of a sudden, Peter shows up, and, and he's good with it. I mean, because he, he knows the gospel, and he knows that this is what the gospel of Jesus is all about, is Jews coming together and Gentiles coming together, and us all eating together and being together in one Abraham family under the reign of King Jesus. <laughs> Peter knew that's what it was about. And then his cousins, <laughs> not really cousins, but his, his Jewish brethren from, from Jerusalem show up, and they're coming to check this out and say, whoa, 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 what in the world is going on here? You've got circumcised people eating with uncircumcised people? What in the world is, go- this is, this is not right. This is not in keeping with the law of Moses. Who do you people think you are? What do you think you're doing? And they were looking down their nose, and Peter, he starts to kind of draw away from the Gentile brothers, remember? And he starts, he starts just hanging out with his Jewish brothers and shunning his Gentile brothers. And Paul says that's hypocritical and it is not in step with the gospel of Jesus. So if we're going to understand the New Testament, we sort of have to get into this mindset and understand that for so many people to whom Paul writes, both in Rome and in the region of Galatia, he's dealing with people who believe that they were entitled to the blessings of Abraham because of their ethnicity. And you can kind of see why, because they are ethnically Jewish. And generation after generation, they had, they had tried to keep the law, right? They had tried to keep the law. But Paul ultimately says, yeah, but you broke it, both on an individual level and probably more in keeping with his argument on a, on a national level, as a people, as a, as a whole community, as a group. You've broken the law too. You, you look down your noses at all the Gentiles and you say, well, God, God's wrath is rightly on them. And everybody who approves of their sin. And Paul wouldn't disagree with that. He says, yeah, but if you're going to talk about judgment and wrath, then you got to start looking in the mirror too. Because there's enough blame to go all the way around. And just because you, you come from Abraham, his lineage doesn't mean that it will save you from the curse of sin or earn you preferential treatment with God. Then Romans chapter 3, we summarize it this way. God's righteousness is seen in his putting forth Jesus as a sin offering setting us free from sin and setting us right with God. That Jesus is the place where the mercy of God is distributed. He is, he is the new mercy seat. He is the, the new Ark of the Covenant. Remember we talked about how the covenant had this covering on it that was called the mercy seat, and that's where the blood was applied. That's where the mercy of God went out to atone for the people's sins so that he could tabernacle with his people. Because that is God's biggest desire, is for God to be reunited with people. And the reason he brought the family of Abraham into a covenant relationship with himself wasn't because they were awesome. <laughs> They're like, man, you, just, you guys are the best people in the whole world. No, and he said over and over again, that's not why. And they proved themselves not to be the best people in the world. Not worse than anybody else, but certainly not better than anybody else. The reason he picked them was that through them, they might bless the rest of the world and eventually bring the rest of the world into a relationship with him. God wants to live in the midst of his people. God wants to be where his people are. And so he 
tabernacled with them. He pitched a tent with his people. And that's amazing, isn't it? And I say that all the time, but it just still blows me away that the God of the universe, the one who spoke the cosmos into being, the one who created light, he created light. That's all I can do to turn on the light switch. But he created it. And he created everything. Everything. He wants to be with human beings. And he made a way to do that. And he lived with them in their midst, in this tent. And at the heart of it was a covenant agreement. God promising himself to these people. And part of that covenant was law. Part of that covenant was blessings. And part of that covenant was covering it was an atoning sacrifice of blood to make the people right with him so that he could be in relationship with them. And Paul says that Jesus now has become, the Hebrew writer will say, the once and for all atoning sacrifice that makes it so that we can be in relationship with God. Set free from sin, and that's going to be a later argument that he expounds on, and set right with God. And that's what he's focusing on here. When he talks about justifying people, it's about setting them right. They, you, you went wrong, and you, 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 you got broken, and he fixed you, and he brought you back. He changed you. He changed you. He transformed you. He converted you. He changed your heart. He gave you a new spirit. This is everything the prophet said was going to happen. He, he made his people so that they could, could live lives that are pleasing to him and put them right with himself. Now, now, he really goes into, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to explore it a little bit more. Look at Genesis 15, starting at verse 1. He really hones in on the promises that God made to Abraham. Because just like with any people, when you start to think about your identity as a people, you go back to your fathers, right? I don't mean like your dad. I mean like your founding fathers, right? So when we, as Americans, if we think about who we are as a people, we go back to the the founding fathers, right? Um, and so, so people have a tendency to go back to the earliest people. And in the case of this relationship between God and Israel, it was Abraham. Abraham was the one that God picked him out, made promises to him. And so Paul goes back to that to show that God is both the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. Genesis 15 and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your, re- your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's, he's a servant in my house. He's not my kid. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no... And Abram said to God, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, If you're able to number them, obviously you're not. Um, Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be, just like those stars. And Abraham, or Abram, did what? He believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So God said, you are good, and I want to be in a relationship with you. And so Paul is going to explore that idea, and we talked about it a little bit last week. And he says in Romans 4, verse 11, 
that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still, what? Uncircumcised. So when God counted Abraham as righteous, when he said, you and I, we're going to have a covenant agreement and you're, you're right with me. You're, you're okay in my book. We're, we're, on, we're on good terms. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? For God to look at a human being and say, we're all right. You and me, we're all right. You're okay in my book. And that's, that's what he's saying to Abraham. Now, was Abraham at that point circumcised? No, not yet. He wasn't circumcised. So in terms of Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, then Abraham, although he's the father of the circumcised, the father of the Jewish people, at that moment, when God says, you and me, we're okay, you're, you're righteous, I consider you to be righteous, Abraham isn't really a Jew yet, right? An Israelite or a circumcised. He is essentially a Gentile. He is uncircumcised. And that's what Paul's honing in on. So he says, the sign of circumcision. When later on, chapter 17, Abraham is circumcised, it's a seal. It's, it's like a wedding ring. It's a sign that you're in a covenant. It wasn't that, that he wasn't right before that. It was that circumcision itself was a sign or a seal that they were in covenant relationship or that God considered him righteous. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's an amazing argument, isn't it? And Paul isn't just, I mean, I've read some commentators that are acting like Paul's just like proof texting his way through this. He's not. He's absolutely showing that Abraham was both a circumcised person and an uncircumcised person. And in both cases, he was right with God. He was in a right relationship with God in both situations, in his uncircumcised state and in his circumcised state. On what basis was he in a right relationship with God? His law-keeping? No. The law wouldn't come for another 400 years. His circumcision? No. That wouldn't come until a few chapters later. It wasn't on that basis that he was in a right relationship. It was the fact that he believed God. He put his faith in him. He trusted him. He said, I'm with you. I take my refuge in you. I believe you're going to keep your promises. Even though, I mean, it seems kind of crazy. I'm a super old guy and my wife is super old and we don't have any kids. And all of a sudden you're telling me or continue to tell me that my kids, my descendants will be like the stars in the sky or like the sand on the seashore. That's what you're telling me. And I believe you. <laughs> as crazy as it is, as hard to believe as it is, I believe you And because he believed God, God said, then you're all right with me. I will enter into a covenant with you. So Romans 4, 1 through 11, Abraham is the father of all Jew or Gentile who walk in his footsteps of faith. Now, did you catch what Paul said there at the very end of verse, verses 12 and 11 and 12? It says, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. So 
Just because Paul is saying, listen, Abraham is the father of all, Jew and Gentile, he's not saying all, like universally all, like all Jews are okay with God because they're circumcised. And he's not saying all Gentiles are okay with God because they're Gentiles. He's saying all people, Jew and Gentile, are okay with God if they have what? Faith. If they believe. Because it was on that basis that Abraham was in a right relationship with God, both in his uncircumcised state and later in his circumcised state because he had faith. So Abraham is the father of all Jew and Gentile who walk in his footsteps of faith. Okay, now, let's get on to something new. That was like 30 minutes of review. I apologize. Okay, Romans 4 and verse 13. Now, ah, I don't know how deep to get into this one because this one might cause some, uh, some heartache. I don't know. But Romans 4, 13. So again, we're following the argument and Paul's saying, listen, you're not, you're not entitled to the blessings God promised to Abraham because of your ethnicity. But if you have faith, and specifically, as he's laying out, faith in whom? Not like just like a generically faith in God, like I, I believe in a higher power. That's not what he's saying, right? Specifically, faith in Jesus. And when Paul talks about faith, and we could go into this really deep too, but when Paul talks about faith, that idea of pistis, it, and we kind of explored this a few weeks ago when we talked about how the, the Jews, the circumcised, were entrusted. Remember? And we said that the root of that word entrusted was pistis, pisteu. That God trusted them with something important. That when we talk about faith or belief, pistis, that Greek word, it really is about allegiance or loyalty to saying, I belong to you. I put my trust in you. I put my faith in you. It's not just like a mental ascent. It's about, it's about trust. It's about loyalty. It's about allegiance. And so as he goes and lays this out, a lot of people had an allegiance to the law, right? They had allegiance to the Torah. They had allegiance to their ethnicity. They had an allegiance to their, their, their people. And then on the other side, I mean, there were a lot of Greeks that had allegiance to Caesar, or allegiance to Rome, or allegiance to their family, or allegiance to all different kinds, allegiance to Zeus, allegiance to whatever gods or goddesses. And here Jesus is saying that anyone, Jew or Gentile, who gives their allegiance to King Jesus, that's what Christ means, right? It's not his last name. The anointed Jesus, God's anointed king, then they are right with God. Now, look at what he says in verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You know, I I read that one time, and and obviously, you know, Paul's argument is about the righteousness of faith and about Abraham being in a right relationship with him. And he just kind of like, as a parenthetical statement, just kind of, I read one commentator today that said it was just kind of a throwaway statement. Like, like you know this, like you, you all know this kind of a thing. And it was like, whoa, 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 slow down. I didn't know that. Hold on. What are you saying? Abraham is the heir of the world? What? Abraham and his descendants? Heir of the world? What, what do you mean by that? Will inherit the world? What, how, what, what do you mean by that, Paul? Uh, one translation puts it this way, which even threw me for a loop as well. It says, clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes 
by faith. That's the New Living Translation. You know, and you go back and you read what God promised to Abraham and about how God promised Abraham the land of Canaan. But as the promises to Abraham and his descendants continued to grow, or you even think about what God promised to Abraham and how Abraham died before he actually took inheritance, he actually received his inheritance. The Jews worked through so much of that. And they wrote things that sound exactly what, like what Paul is saying here. And I don't want to get into it too much because we're going to explore it in depth in Romans 8. But Paul says this, or not Paul, rather. The Jews wrote this, Book of Jubilees, 32, verse 19. So this isn't scripture, but, um, but, but writing that, that kind of shaped the thinking there. I shall give to your seed all of the land under heaven, and they will rule in all nations and they have, as they have desired. And after this, all of the earth will be gathered together and they will inherit it forever. To the elect, there shall, there shall light, joy, and peace, and they shall inherit the earth. First Enoch chapter 5 and verse 7. Again, this isn't scripture, but I just want you to understand the expectation that Jewish people had. That if we keep the Torah and we are purely descendants of Abraham, then we will inherit the earth. Uh, fourth Ezra chapter 6 verse 55 through 59 all this I've spoken before you O Lord because you have said that it was for us that you created the world as for the other nations which have descended from Adam you have said that they are nothing and now O Lord behold these nations which are reputed as nothing domineer over us and devour us but we your people whom you've called your firstborn only begotten zealous for you and most dear have been given into their hands. If the world has indeed been created for us, why do we not possess our world as an inheritance? How long will this be so? And then again, therefore the Lord assured, assured Abraham with an oath that the nations would be blessed through his offspring, that he would make him as numerous as the dust of the earth and exalt his offspring like the stars and give them an inheritance from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. So I read all of that to tell you not only did, did Paul sort of confirm that, that Abraham and his descendants would inherit the earth, and I know there's like a thousand questions going through our head, and, and we'll get to that in Romans chapter 8, but we even start to think about it. We think even, even Jesus, do you remember in the Beatitudes? Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall, what, inherit the earth, right? Inherit the earth. And so that, that was an expectation, and again... <laughs> When you feel entitled to an inheritance because of your genealogy, then you feel kind of jealous when other people start to crowd in on your inheritance. And Paul's argument here, even though this whole inherit the earth kind of thing, and we'll talk about that in Romans 8, but that's just kind of a a side parenthetical statement. His point is that Gentiles are going to inherit the earth, right? And that Jews are going to inherit the earth if, for both groups, Jew and Gentile, if they have, what? Faith in Jesus the Messiah. Because on that basis, they're declared to be righteous, right? And so when Jesus talks about the righteous will be raised and the wicked will be raised and they both will be judged and that the righteous will live forever and the meek will inherit the earth, he's talking about anyone. Jew or Gentile who has faith in him. Romans 4, 14 and 15. 
For if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, for if, I'm sorry, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, if it's just the people who keep the law, faith is null and the promise is void, right? It's not based on promise. It's not based on God's grace. It's just based on whether or not you kept the law and we've already established you haven't, right? So if that's it, if that's, if that's the basis, then nobody's getting any inheritance. Promises aren't coming true. God's, God's promises, they're just, they're just flopped out, right? I mean, they don't, they're not coming true because nobody kept up their end of the bargain. If that's, if that's the basis that the promises are going to be handed out. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Nobody, nobody is going to be an heir based on their allegiance to the Torah, Nobody is going to be an heir based on their ethnicity. Nobody's going to be an heir based on uh, the law because the law just shows you, you broke it. All y'all, right? You all, you all broke it. Jew and Gentile, you've all fallen short. That's why, verse 16, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise, and again, keep in mind what that promise is. The promise may rest on grace and be, I like that word. What's that next word? Be guaranteed rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all as it's written I have made you the father of many nations this promise is guaranteed this inheritance belongs to all of Abraham's descendants to those that kept the law yes absolutely but not because they kept the law because they had faith, because they share in the faith of Abraham. And those that didn't know anything about the law, who never heard of the Torah, who never kept the Sabbath, who never ate kosher food, who were never circumcised, they too will be heirs, inherit the world. Why? Because they too have faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And in that way, Abraham is the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, kind of hold on to that phrase. Verse 18, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. That's a, that's a cool idiom, isn't it? Cool saying. He says, Abraham believed against hope. I mean, it was a hopeless situation, right? When you're, when you're that old, you're pushing 100. I mean, nobody's like, you know, I'm really hoping we get pregnant. You know, I'm really banking on that. That's really what I think is going to happen. I mean, that's a hopeless situation. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Be like what? Like the stars, right? God said, hey, look at, look at all that. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which, is good, which was as good as, here's the key, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Do you remember? Look at, back at verse 17. We're going backwards. That God gives life to the dead. He gives life to the what? Dead, right? He gives life to the dead. God gives life to the dead. And then he says that Abraham, his body, as far as having kids was concerned, it was as good as dead, right? His body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And in fact, in Greek, that word barrenness literally means the deadness, the deadness of her womb. He, he, didn't, he didn't say, well, pff, that's ridiculous, and I don't believe you, God. That's a lie. You're never going to help us have kids. We can't have kids. We're as good as dead. 
Why didn't, why didn't he think that way? Why didn't he say that? Why didn't he say, this will never come true because we're dead? Because that's, that's God's specialty. He brings into existence things that don't exist, and he brings to life things that are dead. And this was before Abraham ever saw anybody raised from the dead. It reminds me of what what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 11, doesn't it? When God told him to, when God told him to sacrifice his son, what did he think was going to happen to Isaac? He was going to be raised from the dead because this is a God who keeps his promises, no matter what. Even if I'm dead, God's going to keep his promises to me. Even if Isaac is dead, God's going to keep his promises to him. Even if my body is as good as dead, if I don't have a kid yet and God says I'm going to have a kid, God will keep his promises. Even if my wife's womb is dead, God will keep his promises because God brings life even to the dead. This is why resurrection is at the very heart. And I don't mean resurrection as sort of like a metaphor or something like that. Resurrection, like God literally bringing the dead back to life, that is at the heart of everything we believe. Which is why, again, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if you don't believe that, then everything else is a waste of time. Our faith is futile if you don't believe that God brings the dead back to life. And that's what he'll say the basis of this is too. Did I skip something? Verse 19, I did. It's not on the screen. I'm going to have to look it up in my Bible here. Chapter 4 and verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, I love that, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith, verse 22, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Why? Because God, or Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Because Abraham believed God keeps his promises. Even when I'm dead, God will keep his promises to me. Even when my family is dead, God will keep his promises to us. But the words, it was counted to him. In other words, the fact that God said, you're good with me. I I look at you and I see a good man that I'm going to love and I'm going to bless and I'm going to take care of and I'm going to keep my promises to you. The fact that that was written and said in the scriptures, it wasn't just written for our for his sake alone, but for ours also, that it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, who? Jesus our Lord. Our entire faith is based on the fact that God keeps his promises and raises the dead to life. The resurrection began with Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. It's like when you go out into the garden and, and none of the other plants have, have blossomed or have any fruit on them yet, but then there's a big, big red tomato on one of them and you pull that off and you've got this beautiful tomato. You don't say, well, that's the only one this garden's ever going to produce, right? No, you say, this is just a taste of what's to come. And we know that God raises the dead, not based on empty promises, but based on kept promises that that Jesus and his resurrection are the evidence of. That's why it was said for our sake, Paul says, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. He died because of our trespasses 
and raised so that we could be justified. Raised for our justification. Jesus died because none of us were righteous, Jew or Gentile. None of us were deserving of the blessings of God or to be heirs of Abraham's promises. But because God is good, God is righteous, and God is the keeper of promises, he put forth Jesus, who was put to death because of our transgressions. He was raised up so that we could all be justified. So that all of us who have faith in Jesus as the Christ, who put our trust in him, who give our allegiance to him, we are the heirs of the promises God made to Abraham. Which means good things are coming, including your resurrection, my resurrection. Not Again, not as a metaphor, but just exactly as Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I will be raised from the dead because just as Jesus is God's family... That's true of you. You're God's family. And just as he keeps his promises to the descendants of Abraham, you're the descendants of Abraham. By faith, Abraham is our father. And he will keep his promises to you. And you will be the heirs. It's a guarantee. Romans chapter 4, 12 through 24, we might summarize like this. Believers in Jesus are guaranteed the inheritance promised to Abraham and his descendants. And that inheritance, according to verse 13, as hard as it may be for us to wrap our mind around, and again, we'll explore it more as we go, it's the world, that we will be heirs of the world when we put our faith in Jesus. Let's close with a prayer. Most Holy Father, we are incredibly thankful to be a part of Abraham's family, to stand before you with a confidence that we are right with you, not because of our perfection, but because of your righteousness. Because you are good, you have made us righteous. You count us to be righteous. And you put us right with you in a right covenant relationship with you. And we are guaranteed the inheritance that you've promised to Abraham and his descendants. And Father, that's hard for us to wrap our mind around, but we're so incredibly thankful. And Father, I pray that you help us to live out of sheer gratitude and devotion and allegiance to you and to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Walk in a way that is in keeping with the good news of Jesus. Father, thank you. And it's in the name of Jesus we thank you and we pray. Amen.